stories. Um, some of us have just had school holidays. Uh, I love school holidays because they give us stories. I have a particular story that uh, I remember going to the Northern Territory and uh, we were we found this lovely sort of lagoon sort of location with a little waterfall and it was hot travelling through there so we thought, oh, purpose hot to swim and we're partway through the swim and then realised that there's this uh, crocodile just sunning itself on a rock, not far, very far from where we were. <laughs> It's a story I remember. It's a story I've told my kids. It's now a story that my kids recite around the dinner table. It's one of those things that we remember. And they say that's really important uh, for kids. It's actually, uh, there's a correlation between resilience, a child's resilience, and they really just tell the stories of their families, how their parents met, um, what happened in the early days of their marriage, because it, stories tell us a lot about our identity and who we are. Stories are really important for forming a self-understanding and so, uh, when I'm on holidays, uh, our family, I think it's probably part of two of we are, but we go looking for stories, we love to go to local museums, and there was just one holiday recently um, that really stood out for us, because in the one holiday we had two very significant stories that the kids heard, and it sort of stuck with them. Uh, the first place we went to was at Yamba, um, northern New South Wales, and that had a history of sugarcane farming. And so, at the local museum, there's all this of how the, the original settlers in the area, they came up by their boats, they cleared the land, they uh, set up sugarcane in farms, and then they had to, to paint it, uh, clear it all, and then send it down by boat. There's, there's all this hard work. And it's just, I remember our kids just being really struck by how hard it would have been to set up a house and to set up a, a, an industry in this area from scratch. And they were really impressed. Uh, a couple of weeks later, the uh, second part of our holiday, we actually went down and stayed at Red Rock. Um, and Red Rock, if you know the area, there's sort of a, a large red rock right at the mouth of the river. You can climb up, and there's a little plaque that we, our kids discovered on the path there. And it tells a story of the area. Um, it tells the story, it says that uh, many of the locals actually know Red Rock as Blood Rock. That's an alternate name for it. And the reason that the local Aborigines remember it that way is that one day the early settlers in the area uh, decided to drive out the original owners. So a couple of them had guns, they uh, shot two one two men from the local tribes. They then gathered those communities together, drove them down the river, up onto this uh, red rock that sits at the mouth of the river, and then off the rock and into the sea. Men, women, children. And tragically, because they were not considered humans by the law, no one was ever held accountable. That was also a story that stuck with our family. And, and it's really, you've got to have both stories, haven't you? If you talk about the early setting of Australia, they're both true. The hard work and these sad moments of uh, self-reflection. Stories shape us. Stories about our family, stories about our society, they, they really inform our understanding of who we are. And so this term, we're going to remember the stories of Abraham. Now, maybe that's a name you know, maybe it's not one you know. If you do know it, chances are you think, oh, that's a bit of an odd thing to spend a term on. I mean, that Abraham, that's the guy you tell kids about, isn't it? That's the, the guy you do in Sunday school. And uh, why would we even be focusing on this story? But we often forget these stories were remembered 
saved by God's people for a reason. Israel held on to these stories that were passed down uh, generation to generation, collected in a book, because they tell the people what it means to be God's people. What does it mean for Israel <coughs> to follow God? These are the, the beginning stories for them. And I reckon these first two stories that we encountered life of Abraham, they're just a great example of how these stories work. Because what we find today is there's, there's sort of two messages, and you could almost say they, they, they contradict each other, but you only really understand relationship with God if you have these two messages together in your mind. And that is, on one hand, God chose a, a particular man and a particular nation to bless this world. That was the solution to the world. But the other thing you remember is they didn't deserve it. They did not deserve it. We'll have, have a listen to the message as it's recorded here in Genesis. So if you have Genesis 12 out, that would be helpful. And then we'll be able to apply it to us and figure out how it speaks to us. How about a prayer? Heavenly Father, do help us as we hear this life of Abram, in particular this morning, to hear these two stories. May they shape our understanding of what it means to be one of your people. And I pray that on one hand, it would see the, the, the particularity of how we know you, but also that feel the warm invitation for anyone to be part of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Okay, so on one hand, Israel are God's chosen people. That's the first thing we learn here. It's a really controversial claim that this story opens with. It suggests that, that of all the nations in the world, that God chose Israel. God picked up one man, Abram, and uniquely blessed him. And you really get that sense if you read this book of Genesis from the start. Genesis is a, a book of beginnings. It talks about the beginning of the world. And then it narrows itself down to this sense of zooming in until we reach to Abram. So first of all, it's just the, the fact there's all these genealogies, and they stop with Abram. Um, you have genealogy after genealogy. Um, Cain and Abel, you focus on Abel. Uh, Seth, Enoch, Noah, you focus on Noah, then there's Shem. Even in chapter 11, there was Terah and all of his children, but the one that matters is Abram. There's this real zooming in and focusing down. And there's also the, the increasing level of detail. So, Adam and Eve, we think that's a pretty important story. Three chapters. Uh, you then move on to Noah and the flood, and you get four chapters. You get to Abram, 14 chapters. Here is a man we're supposed to know about, and it's not his dress sense that we're told about, it's not his hairstyle. We're not told a lot about who Abram is as a person. We're told about God's promise to him. Have a look at the verses there. Notice how you actually hear the promise in detail right up front in verses 1 to 3. And then all we see is Abram respond to the promise. See him pack up his family, travel in the land, sort of take the journey with him until in verse 7 we pause. It's almost like we're standing right next to Abram as we listen to God make the promise all over again. The promise is what matters. And the reason is that, that finally God is offering to bless the world. Uh, maybe your home group explored this. Genesis 1 to 11, it's, it's this history of blessing and curse. Starts out with blessing, God makes the world, and as he makes it, he blesses it, blesses the animals, tells them to be fruitful, uh, blesses uh, humanity, and tells them to be fruitful. There's this real sense that if God's blessing is about being prosperous, 
life working, that the world is going right, and that keeps happening until people disobey God, and then there's curse. Snakes curse, the people are cursed, the land, the land is cursed. And then you keep reading in Genesis, and it's just curse. Pain is cursed because he killed his brother. Um, the flood is this massive curse on the world. There's really very little promise of blessing until here we get to chapter 12. There is finding its way back to blessing. There is a land where God will bless his people. Uh, there's a nation, a, a group of people, an offspring of Abram that will be blessed. And that through this man, the whole world is being offered blessing. Land, offspring, and blessing. That's what's going on in verses 1 to 3. Have a look. That the Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is why there were folks in Abram. This is why he matters so much. Abram is a solution for everything we want. So I have uh, non-Christian friends, they don't believe in God, but they do get upset when life goes wrong. They have this sense that things should generally work out, and when it doesn't, it, it grates, that they get angry. I, I've heard this in an interview with Lee Sales, you know Lee Sales is the ABC reporter. She had an interview with one of these conversation hours recently, and she, she, apparently in her life she had three significant tragedies happen in, in quick succession. And she just reflects on it and says, you know what? I, I just, I, I thought that in life, you don't really have one major bad thing happen. That's just how life works. It's not right. Uh, it's not fair that you should have more than one bad thing happen. And uh, she, she said, oh, like, I know that's, it doesn't make sense because I don't believe in God. And it's sort of magical thinking, but I just found that was my reaction to the situation. I reckon Genesis is telling us why we have the reaction to that situation. We were made for blessing. And when it doesn't happen that way, when we find life is cursed, we have this deep sense of wrongness, of injustice, that, that there is something better we were made for. Abram is the door back into blessing. Now that's really good news if you're an Israelite. Uh, the place that the world needs to go to if they want blessing is your nation. Good news if you're an Israelite, but what about the not? Because, like, isn't this the sort of stuff that leads to abuse? Isn't this the sort of thing that makes people arrogant, that makes a nation feel proud and, and, and boastful, and doesn't it actually often lead to war, thinking that God favours me more than anyone else? I, uh, remember in church history, uh, there's this guy back in the 1500s, and uh, he genuinely believed that God had blessed his underpants. I don't quite know how he came to this understanding. But yet, uh, during the Reformation, early days, this guy believed God had blessed his underpants, and so as he rode the battle, he was wearing this particular pair of dacks, he would not be killed. I don't need to tell you, he was very happy to go into battle, quite confident of his victory. I probably also don't need to tell you that quite sure. <laughs> uh, this is different though when we're reading about Abraham. God really has blessed Abraham 
So what is it that stops the arrogance? What is it that stops him from riding out to battle in pride against the enemies? I think it's the rest of the story. Because while God chose Abram, he didn't deserve it. You read on, you find Abram is a wimp. Look at verse 10. I just want you to really notice how Abram chickens out on all of God's promises. So, first of all, God promised him a land, right? But the moment there's a famine, where does he go? He runs off to Egypt. He abandons the land that God had promised him. He doesn't just run, though. He is a cowardly liar because God promised him offspring. But look at how he behaves with his wife. He says that he's worried about her beauty and protecting her. But he's not protecting her. He's protecting himself. Because he expects her to lie so that he doesn't get killed. And so he's willing to give up the wife that would give him the children that God had promised. He gives her up. She ends up in the harem of Pharaoh. And he doesn't seem all that concerned so long as the delivery man keeps coming from Pharaoh with all the animals and the food and the whatnot. He's given up the promise of land. He's given up the promise of offspring. What was that first promise? End of verse 2. You will be a blessing. Actually, the language in the original is, is stronger than that. You know how God tells Abram to go in verse 1? Well, the end of verse 2 is also a command. It is be a blessing. Verse 3 is simply unpacking what it means to be a blessing. But what happens when Sarah is in the harem? Pharaoh is cursed. Pharaoh is cursed. The exact opposite of what God commanded. So yes, God chose Abram to bring this blessing to the world, but it's not because he deserves it. And if you keep reading the Bible, you see that that is exactly how the Bible tells the story of Israel as a nation. Yes, God has chosen to bless the world. Yes, this is the place to look for God's promises, but it's not because they're obedient. It is not because these are the people that deserve God's blessing. And, and so you, can you see the effect of these two stories. Uh, we are blown away by the size of God's promises, but we're thoroughly unimpressed with the faithfulness of that. Now, I want to think about that. If you told my kids stories, if I was going to tell them stories to help them build a self, sense of self-identity, I reckon I would focus on the farmers who settled in northern New South Wales. I want this patterned example of hard work, a, a really good story that, that builds up their, their self-image and, and helps them to stick at it just like those farmers endured the floods. I want them to, to work hard and keep going. That's the story I'd be tempted to tell. But that's not the, the story the Bible tells. The Bible also tells the story of floods. It paints this very real, very gritty picture of people, of people who call themselves God's people. He shows them what's in the world. Because the hero of the Bible isn't people, not humanity. It is God. The, the focus of the Bible, the place we're supposed to be looking, is God and his promises, not the behaviour of the people who are supposed to be looking at Because they don't. And I, I, I want to think about what that means for us in our relationship with God, but can I just say on the side, this is one of the reasons I, I really see how convincing the Bible is as history, not myth. And you can go and find myths written for various nations, 
to help them understand themselves and to justify their place in the world. And they tend to idealise those, those original personalities, those uh, events in their history. They idealise them and paint them as, we are the people that, that really get it right. But that's not how the Bible reads. The Bible really is written as history. And so it humiliates Israel, but that's okay because it highlights God. It's just pointing us back to the God who actually worked in history, that Israel watched do these things and that humbled them, but gave them hope in his promises. So, how does that happen for us? Well, first of all, it reminds us that God chose Abram. If you want to find a story to find blessing in this world, the place to look is Abram. That is hard to hear, because I have lots of friends of mine somewhere else for blessing in life. I've got friends who explore spirituality, but a few that are into, um, uh, what do you call them, essential oils. Uh, there's people who uh, really are polarised about politics, some on the left, some on the right, all of them convinced that if that particular picture of the world happened, then this world would be blessed, would be a better place. And of course, there's always the, the narrative of science having all the answers. There's lots of places where being offered to look for blessing in this world, but God chose Abraham. God promised blessing through Abram to this particular nation. If you want a story to tell your kids at night over the dinner table to give them hope for this world, this is it. The story of Abram and his family. Of course, there's a problem with that. Abram's story isn't my story. I mean, I can tell the story of cane farming in northern New South Wales as my story. I'm an Australian. I can't really tell the story of the French Revolution as my story. I can't tell the story of American emancipation as my story. And Abram's story really belongs to Israel. It doesn't belong to me. And that's really important for us to remember as we read the Bible. That there are particular moments in history that belong to the nation of Israel. That they belong to particular people in God's history. They're not promises I can always pick up but just assume that they belong to me. God didn't promise to make the nation of Australia great. He didn't promise to bless us and make us prosper. He certainly didn't promise us attractive land in the Middle East. Our only end to the story of Abram is verse 3, when God says, all nations will be blessed through Abram. But see, that's the thing. Abram didn't deserve the blessing. You read on the Bible. Israel didn't deserve the blessing. They failed to bless the nations. And you go all the way through, but in the family of Abraham comes a man named Jesus. And through him, the blessing of the nations comes. So how do we begin at Galatians 3? Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who has come from the whole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So just like Abraham didn't deserve it, this is saying yes, no, uh, Gentiles don't deserve, they don't earn their way with God. But it's saying that Jesus died on the cross, Jesus died on the pole, so that all nations could be blessed. So that Abraham's promises could be our promises. Jesus is what makes Abraham's story our story. My story. He's the one who deserved blessing, but he chose to be a curse. 
for them to meet with the curse. I, not because I deserve it, but I fail to deserve it. Okay, how does that feel to you? I don't know about you. Um, I know that there are many people who come to church and they have a deep sense of not deserving to be here. Does it sometimes come to your mind? I, I, I really, I don't deserve to be called a Christian. I don't deserve to be God's people. If that's you, then I'm inviting you to listen to the story of Abraham. Listen to Genesis 12 because this story you can make. It's true, you don't deserve God's blessing, none of us do, but he is offering all the blessings of heaven, but only through Abraham, only through Jesus. So you can do what he says, you can trust him, you can trust Jesus' death for you, so that you can look for the blessing, not for And if that is your trust, that is your hope, why don't you share the story with us? Make it a story you'd like to talk about. And particularly, let's pray, because we want to live the gospel message, but we also want to give the gospel message. We want, especially as we give up this message, to be people whose lives and mouths point to a story which guarantees blessing to this world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you know in this past week the ways we have disobeyed you, the hard attitudes we've had towards others, the pride we've felt, the lies we've sought. Please forgive us through Jesus. Show us how kind you are as you promise to bless us through him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And we're going to lay hold of those promises now. We're going to remember how we don't deserve. We're going to have uh, Lord's Supper together, communion. Um, so if, if you uh, are somebody who trusts in Jesus, this is very much what I'm going to invite you to. Um, doesn't matter if you normally come to this church family or not. Um, but if you don't know Jesus as your king, if you don't have your trust and confidence in him, then don't please take this meal because you'd be saying you trust in Jesus. Declaring that his death was for you and This is how Jesus talked about his death. Um, he compared it with God providing manna in the wilderness. He said um, that, that you need to eat his body and drink his blood for life. Uh, Jesus said this in John 6. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So Jesus gives his body to give us life. I hope you're a friend of life. It's a horrible thing. To eat someone's flesh. Certainly the Jews are offended. But it's essential. Have a listen on. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him up at the last day. How about that? Heavenly Father, as we take this bread and drink now, may it remind us of how much we need Jesus' death for us. May it be a symbol for us of what we do by faith, 
as we rely on his body and we drink his blood, accepting his death in our place, that he was was hurt so that we could be better. I am his name. Thank you.